Welcome to Apostrophe Cast. We have all heard rumors that literature is dying, but every so often one reads a new journal that renews one's faith in the future. The Collagist is just such a journal, and the contributors Charles Jensen, reading five poems from Nanopedia, Kevin Wilson, reading from the Big Book of Forgotten Lunatics, and Kim Chinqui, reading three pieces of flash fiction, have written such good work that one must believe the rumors of literature's demise are premature. Please enjoy these readings from the contributors to The Collagist. This is Charles Jensen, and I'm going to read um, some sections from a book-length project called Nanopedia, which would be the world's smallest encyclopedia. The sections don't have numbers or titles, so I'll just pause in between, and that's how you'll know the section breaks. Nanopedia. The moon watches you through her veil of thin clouds. You camp in the woods or make out with a boy you just met behind the shed. Poor victim, that pale moon, scared white by the nightly killings going on below until at last her all-seeing eye closes in a sky-wide wince. A girl goes down. A girl goes down every night, the same three cuts, sternum, belly, throat. The moon stands at the doorway like a bride in her wedding dress, whose groom, unbeknownst to her, is dragged by the feet toward his grave. How long does she need to wait? The lover isn't coming. The moon knows he won't make it. But now she's seen too much. It wasn't inevitable. Imagine the beautiful boy wasn't destroyed. The way we keep taking all the beauty from the world, we'll soon forget it wasn't always something feminine. Two guys out for a good time, Snicker. Let's go fuck up something beautiful. They mean a garden or the semi-nude statues in the downtown plaza, but then the boy is bloody before them, crumbled in a heap. Nothing about this world is worth saving. And here there is a delicate face made ugly by pain. It is done. The myth of male beauty is still a myth. The world moves on. Men are nothing but ugly now. Men have taken off their human faces. Their smile splits open like two halves of rotten steak. Their breath is a smell I can never forget. Tragedy makes the shape of no with his mouth, and sooner or later, you know some teenage boy thinks, round peg, round hole. And suddenly, tragedy is the most popular kid on the block. Comedy, with her mouth stretched so tight, makes all the girls hate her. They brainstorm the worst things to call her when her back is turned. And so life goes on this way. Everybody loves a loose tragedy, but comedy doesn't get near enough play. The difference between Hamlet and Hambone. When I heard 63 birds were found dead in your city, I was afraid it was a kind of omen. Birds die every day in smaller numbers. 
and each death is unremarkable for its solitude. A collection of things that move en masse toward oblivion smacks of disaster, of ruin. Love in the time of plague is more urgent. And I was ready to be urgent for you. I was ready to count their small corpses and name each fallen body before they left our world. It seemed important, giving them something else they could leave behind. My mannequin is not very tall or thin. My mannequin has disproportionate arms of another sex. The name of my mannequin must never be spoken. My mannequin is an outcast in the mannequin community. My mannequin strives for excellence. My mannequin votes only in presidential years. My mannequin trusts first in God and asks all others to pay cash. My mannequin believes justice is absolute. Stupid absolutist thinking is just like a mannequin. My mannequin is rumored to be gay for pay. Several men who have loved my mannequin have been hospitalized for removing their own limbs. Sacrifice will not make my mannequin love you. My mannequin says the world will not end in fire nor ice, but due to lack of interest. Something has been living inside my mannequin. Something has tempted my mannequin beyond my comprehension. Mannequin, be not proud. Be silent and still. Mannequin, be tender. Excerpt from the Big Book of Forgotten Lunatics, Volume 1. The King of the Sinkholes, Dr. Wesley Parton. 1877 to 1958. He was born without ears, his skin bone white, his mother bled out, his father a veteran of the Civil War, his left arm a sleeve of fabric, smothered the newborn baby for 17 minutes with a wadded up cloth handkerchief, but the child did not perish. He reportedly called sinkholes the most vaginal of God's natural occurrences, though this has been disputed and is probably a case of myth-making rather than fact. Wrapped in a thin mummy of his deceased mother's dresses, the child developed quickly. He discovered his first sinkhole at age seven, noting in the letter section of the June 7, 1884 edition of the Gainesville Sun the slumping fence posts and wilting vegetation of the affected area. Seven days later, the earth had collapsed, a cone of debris signifying the development. He once berated an assistant for an error, exclaiming, This is a goddamned hole, you fool, not a sinkhole. It's just a hole. At age ten, he was elected to the Southeastern Topographic and Geologic Society. At the initiation ceremony, he allowed the vice president's wife to touch the places where his ears should have been. How do you hear, she asked. My teeth, he answered, and when she ran her fingertip across his incisors, he winced. He reportedly called sinkholes the devil punching holes in the earth with his penis, though this has been disputed and is probably a case of myth-making rather than fact. After his father tried to poison him with a fork melted down and poured over his food, he accepted a position with the United Fruit in South America, 
During his three years on this continent, he is credited with the acquisition and study of four separate sinkholes, the most famous of which is the Pacarana sinkhole, which was single-handedly responsible for the near extinction of the Pacarana, a giant rat first reported in Western science by Count Branicki of Poland. Parton called the loss less than regrettable. When an assistant was lost in the resulting collapse of a sinkhole in Amarillo, Texas, due to the boy's attempt to obtain a photograph of himself standing in the widening depression in the earth, Parton called the loss less than regrettable. He returned to the United States in 1900 and quickly began gathering investors for a scientific experiment that culminated at the 1905 World's Fair in Portland, Oregon, when Parton, three fingers on his right hand now jaggedly amputated, his skin peeling and cracked from exposure to the sun, unveiled the first intentional man-made sinkhole in recorded history. He achieved the feat by pumping acidic groundwater through drilled holes underneath a layer of limestone. Having created an underground cavern, he then removed the water and gradually increased the topsoil weight, causing the sinkhole, which was timed to occur on the third day of the fair. The damage totaled in the millions for the city, but Parton was hailed as a visionary by the international press. Man once again defies God was the headline in the Antwerp Gazette in Belgium, along with a photograph of Parton, covered in particulates, his mangled hand covering his face, backing away from angered onlookers. He liked to pronounce the word sinkholes in the Spanish way. After a lucrative, around-the-world lecture tour, Parton returned to the States in the company of a young, deaf-mute girl of 13 years of age, Beatrice Byerly. She was alternately referred to as Parton's young ward and Parton's wife by the press. In a diary discovered after her death, Byerly called Parton, My Insane Lovely and referred to his interest in sinkholes as something akin to a dead tiger reanimated by means of wire and electricity, ferocious and unnatural. He referred to sinkholes that did no damage and barely altered the landscape as Jesus sinkholes, not God sinkholes, experiments made with a toy chemistry set to show the father that the child understands the methods but lacking any of the rage that all great occurrences must possess. Sometimes this is attributed to Grand Moxon, another sinkologist of the era. In 1923, the noted American artist Ermel Pageant painted Parton's portrait, which currently hangs in the Jacksonville Museum of Art. In the painting, Parton is soaking wet, his hands stained with pine tar, his eyes closed and shoulders slumped as if asleep or dead. The painting was commissioned by the state of Florida in commemoration of the honoring of Dr. Parton as the Floridian of the year. Parton refused to sit for the portrait and the painting was made only after he fell down a well and was rendered unconscious. Sink, to bring to utter ruin or collapse. After a fired assistant referred to Byerly as dumbed by God in anticipation of her union with Dr. Parton. Parton beat the young man to death with a rock hammer. The body was then deposited at the bottom of a sinkhole in Huffman, Georgia. 
For reasons unknown, Parton placed a tuning fork in the assistant's hand to suggest suicide or misadventure. Parton was arrested and sentenced to ten years in prison. This event led to the popularization of several songs about the murder, including Hammered to Heaven and the Rockhammer Waltz. In a letter to Byerly, he referred to the escape from prison by means of creating a sinkhole as a damned fool's errand. While in prison, Parton existed on spelt, both boiled and in seed form. He attributed this to his good health while incarcerated, and when released, created the Baldus Spelt Company, which introduced spelt crackers to the American public. It was a financial disaster and left Parton nearly bankrupt. On his deathbed, Parton reportedly called sinkholes merely one of the many forms by which the earth expresses its displeasure with humanity, though this has been disputed and is probably a case of myth-making rather than fact. His gravestone reads, Here lies Wesley Parton, for as long as the earth may contain him. On the wheel, now her son drove. They took a trip to the next town, since there wasn't much in this town, though there wasn't much in that one either, and the ride was a lonely highway with nothing on the sidelines, save a couple trailers. The route was one they'd taken many times when they both used to live there, years before, when he was approaching adolescence, had said he hated that they lived there. And then, a year ago, after she left for a job, he stayed. He didn't want to leave there. He was bigger now, of course, with his hair flipped to his side, his chin full of whiskers, and his muscles were bigger than both hers and his father's combined. He was waiting for some orders as a soldier. He'd said, I made up my mind, Mom. I need your support, Mom. He was living with a friend now. She was staying at a motel. They had a lot of downtime. He drove his car, one that used to belong to his stepmom, with the music way up, his hands on the wheel. His mother looked out the window, remembering the time she got arrested on that road when she had been mistaken. It had become the story of that road, and she couldn't get it out of her head. Her hands in cuffs, asking the man to please let her go, are loosing, how she needed to get to her son. Since he was at school and waiting, and she was all he had then, he'd be worried. He was worried. He'd been so worried when she'd called him. He'd needed her then. When she got home finally, she held him, said it was okay now. Now he just drove, pointing to cars on the road, saying, this one is a sports car, and then that one. Oh, she said. She said she never paid attention to what the cars looked like. They were in the state of cars, most of them looking big, like they could eat up the universe. She started to feel nostalgic and told him that sometimes she wished he needed her in the ways he used to, like when he was small, like when he needed her all the time. He said, I still need you all the time, Mom. The day she had arrived, he'd sat on the bed of her motel room. He lay across, and she put drops in his ears to alleviate his ringing. She did one side, then the other. She'd sat there with her boy. She almost stroked his head. She'd watched him on the pillow, his eyes closed, his body so long. I was there for the team. 
We put our bags on piles, coming back when we were done with stretching, changing into racers, taking off our watches and our sweatpants, zipping all our bags shut. It was an inaugural for our team, the indoor. We'd never had a meet that wasn't full of cinder. This track was almost rubber. It was softer than a gym floor. Guns went off and people cheered, just like any other track meet, but here the air felt toxic, like when you're on an airplane and people are coughing. We wore our colors, clashing with opponents. The place was like a bubble, and then there was my track coach. I was scared of him, though I didn't know why. I was no sprinter, though I used to win the hundred. I was no good at distance either, but that's what they needed. This track was smaller than the outside. I had to run the distance, so I went to the start, always feeling hungry and electric. When the gun went off, we raced ahead like always. We ran, but this was a small track, round and round around. The coach had demonstrated how to pump my arms around the bends, so I did that, though people were passing. After a while, I came upon a girl. We ran like that for a while, and I got dizzier than normal. I pictured myself above all the noise until she got the edge and passed me. My legs got heavy. My arms. People cheered. The noise was one big echo. I saw spots and black, then told myself to keep it together. I tried to think ahead. I thought I saw my coach, his head leaning, maybe yelling something. Was he my father? He was smiling. I pushed my body, using my legs, though I could have been rising. We decided not to give them faces. My boyfriend and I went outside and tried to make a snowman, but we only had enough snow for one big ball, so we made the ball into a head. Two cigars as eyes, a celery nose, a smile with grapes. I'd brought my beret from the time I was in the Air Force, and we put it on top. The next day, the snowman was still there, but the grapes weren't. The day after that, the snow melted. I kissed my boyfriend, showed him a poem I'd written about the moon and a lover who said he'd come back. My boyfriend stepped away. He said the poem was lovely. He didn't ask about the lover, but I probably wouldn't have told him. That other guy wasn't like him, wasn't safe and careful. It snowed more, so we put on hats and mittens. It was hard, the wind, and my boyfriend kept telling me how to roll the snow correctly. Do it like this, he said, but I tried to make the man the way that I remembered, with a big head and a small body. My snowman toppled over. What? my boyfriend said. I kind of laughed. I kissed him. Let's make love, I said. He got up. He went inside and fixed himself a sandwich. Can we talk? I said. I asked him why he wouldn't touch me. His mouth was full. He swallowed, said, not now, then, baby, are you hungry? I wasn't hungry. I said I wasn't hungry. I put on my hat and coat. I went back out, making snow angels. Thank you for listening. Please join us next episode for Nate Pritz.